Well, good morning, Maynardville Fellowship. Good morning and greetings from Christ the King in Anderson County, Tennessee. It is good to be with you this morning. If you'll please turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5. Our text this morning will be principally from verses 8 and 9. However, I'll give a little bit of context this morning, beginning with verse 6 and going through verse 11. And as you read along with me now, please remember that these are the words of the Lord. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be of sober spirit and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished amongst your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, strengthen, confirm, and ground you. To Him be might forever and ever. Amen. And thus far is the reading of the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you'll pray with me now, we'll ask God's blessing on our time. Father, we thank You that we can come into Your presence this morning. And as sheep who are hungry for food, we know that it comes only from Your Word through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we pray now that this time would be profitable. Through the Word of God, the unction of the Holy Spirit, please use me to speak to these Your people and feed them and encourage them and strengthen them for the warfare that they have in this world and also in the unseen world. We ask this in the name of Jesus our Savior, and Amen. Well, I'm grateful for the opportunity and privilege to speak to you all this morning. I want to thank Pastor Matt for his willingness to share his pulpit with me. And Mr. Province and the leadership here at Manorville Fellowship for trusting me to rightly handle the word of truth. It is a privilege and an honor, I assure you. I want you all to know that Christ the King loves and prays for Manorville Fellowship on a regular basis. We are ecstatic that God has given us a sister church in the next county over who shares our radical commitment to faithful obedience to the gospel in every area of life. Most churches with our convictions don't have anyone with a like mind for about 200 miles or so. But just 30 miles down the road, we have a sister church who both believes and lives like Jesus is King, and that all His enemies are being, present tense, put under His feet, and who expects the church of Christ to be victorious. I assure you, we count this a significant blessing, and we are very thankful for you. Unfortunately, Manorville Fellowship and Christ the King have some not-so-great things in common, and one that I'll mention to you this morning is that almost every one of us was raised in an ocean of materialism. 
12 years of public indoctrination into the creed of the universe is all there is, all there was, and all there ever will be. Now that sort of teaching takes an elusive but substantial toll on your biblical worldview. And it trickles down to the health and life and unity of the fellowship here in Maynardville. That brings me to my topic and and the topic of this morning's sermon. I want to take a brief glance this morning into the unseen realm. That invisible world where there are real and active threats to your sanctification and your holiness. Specifically, I want to talk to you about the devil. Now, I want to say up front that this is not my favorite topic. This is not my go-to sermon. I just love preaching about this. But since Christ the King was planted in August of 2021, few things have been used by God in the life of our church to protect us from the plots of our ancient foe like this particular message. Before I begin, though, I want to say a few things up front. Let's just calibrate our minds a little bit as we prepare to discuss this difficult topic. First of all, this sermon is meant to inform you. It is not meant to frighten you. Satan is a defeated foe. The strong man, all tied up. Now, Matt took you all through that back when you went through Matthew chapter 12. And at the pace you go through text, that was, what, a decade ago, brother? Maybe? (laughs) Somewhere in that neighborhood? At the same time, the Bible informs us that Satan is, as he is bound, still on the prowl. He's working up an assault on the saints of God. My main goal today is to make sure that, as the Apostle Paul puts it, he is unable to outwit you. That you would not be ignorant of his designs. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. The second thing that I have to mention at the beginning of this sermon is this. Anytime you deal with the realm of principalities and powers, you should beware of two common extremes. The first is obsession. A Christian should never walk away from a message on the devil or angels or heaven or hell with an inordinate craving for the secret things which are ultimately reserved for the Lord. Deuteronomy 29.29 You walk away from a sermon like this thinking, I want to know everything about the unseen world. I want to know how many angels there are and how many demons there are. Where do they hide? How do they fight? What kind of weapons do they use? And what armor upgrades can they unlock? Is this anything like the Bible Man show I used to watch when I was a kid? Okay, some of you all have watched Bible Man before. I know that's a little silly. But you all know that people obsess over things like this. God has given us a window into this world. He has given us information on it, but that's all He's given us is a peek, a little glance behind the curtain. And the line between curiosity and idolatry is finer than we'd like to admit. So please be careful of the extreme of obsession. The second extreme is ignorance. And by ignorance, I mean ignorance. Complete disregard of the spiritual realm as a lot of hocus-pocus silliness. You can't get to the end of the book of 1 Peter 
and think that this bit about the ravenous lion really isn't that big a deal. I mean, he's been talking to them about all their worldly sufferings and how they're persecuted. Slaves are persecuted and wives are persecuted and Christians are persecuted for the name of Jesus. But this bit about the lion really isn't that big a deal. That's nonsense. If you're like me, materialism was the sugar-laced cereal you were fed for breakfast every day of your childhood, and I usually had a bowl of it for dinner too, it's not wrong for you to be aware of what the Bible says about the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We are given insight into this area. The book of Colossians, by the way, would make a whole lot more sense to you if you understood these categories and you had them here in the back of your mental dictionary. I really enjoy the Haunted Cosmos podcast by Ben Garrett and Brian Savay. I think they're doing a good job today of speaking to Christians about this topic in a way that is balanced, that doesn't go too far, but does look at things through a biblical lens. But let's get to our text this morning. Having those two extremes in our mind that we need to avoid, obsession and ignorance, we want to be aware. We want to make sure that we're not going to be outwitted. The Bible says that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, from verse 8 of our text this morning. Now, just a little background on 1 Peter. The letter of 1 Peter follows a typical epistle pattern. You have indicatives loaded up front, and those are followed by imperatives. After covering briefly the glories of our living hope in Jesus... The inspired apostle sends, excuse me, spends the lion's share of his time addressing the concern of his dispersion churches. And that is this. This is what Peter is principally concerned with. How do you deal with a world that hates your guts and openly persecutes you, threatens your life, and still act like a Christian in the middle of it? How do you do that? How can you accomplish this loving your enemies thing? How does that play out? What does it look like? Now, as he concludes his writing here in chapter 5, he draws their attention to an oft-forgotten player in this global game. And this isn't a throwaway last-minute thought. Oh, yeah, don't forget the devil. He's out there prowling around. As Peter's readers transition from casting their anxieties on the benevolent Christ who deeply cares for them, and a sense of relief comes over them, Peter gives a gentle reminder. He says, don't drop your guard. Cast all your anxieties on God since He cares about what happens to you. But remember, church, you're fighting on two fronts. So stay alert. Here's a big takeaway at the start. Here's something that you can think to apply right now in your own life, the very beginning of the sermon. There is more to the Christian life than your personal Bible study and devotional prayers. There's more to the Christian life than church attendance each week, or your practice of evangelism, or dealing with your sin and you trying to be sanctified out of it. There is more to the Christian life than your enemies in this world and your strivings to endure sufferings and persecutions for Jesus. There is more than just how you react to and deal with the sin of your brothers and sisters here at Maynardville Fellowship. 
or your dream to start a business in Union County or a women's shelter or your 500-year plan to create a family lineage and heritage or whatever it is. There's more going on in the Christian life than just what you see. And what you can't see, Peter says here, can hurt you. What you can't see can hurt you. We have an enemy. He is objective. He is alive. He is active. He is more elusive than the nocturnal king of the beasts. And he has one job to which he is sadistically devoted. And I'll get to more on that in just a minute. I'm thankful that our two churches have no reservations about preaching to sins directly from the pulpit. But sin isn't the only reason that your life is hard, beloved. Sin is not the only reason that your life is hard. I heard an old pastor one time say, even if you had no sin, whatever to deal with in your own heart, you would still face enormous opposition from the outside to living the Christian life. Consider the Lord Jesus, perfectly sinless. Yet he faced more spiritual pressure than any of us will ever dream of. As the new and better Adam, he faced not a few moments of peace in a garden of paradise, only to end up falling into sin, as the first Adam did, but 40 days in a barren wilderness with no food and no water, and he was tempted on at least three occasions by the devil, and he still resisted that temptation. Here's the alarm that I want to raise from 1 Peter 5 this morning. There is an invisible, international conflict continuing throughout the church age. It is being waged on more than one battlefront, and you have got to keep your wits about you. If you were at a military briefing this morning, your next question would naturally be, so who are we up against? What are we facing? Give us some intel on this enemy of ours. Peter gives us three words. He gives us the word adversary, devil, and lion. Let me look at these three in turn. First in verse 8, the word adversary. The word in Greek is antidikos, which means one who opposes, an enemy, or an accuser. This is the only time this noun is used to describe the devil in the entire Bible, but it is not unique to his name. It carries roughly the same meaning as the Hebrew equivalent, Satan, or Satan, which means one who withstands. Remember Peter's first-hand combat experience against him. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail, from Luke 22. During those final hours of Christ's life, this opposer was pulling out all the stops against the Apostle Peter to destroy his faith in Jesus. Antidikos, you need to know, also carries with it a legal connotation. Jesus said in another passage, As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way. That's from Luke chapter 12. It's the same word, antidikos. And he said in another place, There was a widow in a city who kept coming to the judge and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. Same word, antidikos. This isn't just a fist fight with the devil. 
It is a constant, ongoing court drama. That's what it is. Satan brought charges against Job in Job chapters 1 to 2. He accuses Joshua the high priest in Zechariah chapter 3. And he lives to prosecute the whole church of Jesus Christ. Listen to this from Revelation 12. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser, noun, same word, antidikos, of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan lives for this. It is his modus operandi. He loves to blame. And these charges are an attempt to persuade on legal grounds. This is a really poor illustration that I'm about to give you. But occasionally I find myself in a waiting room for my car to get fixed, or maybe a doctor's office, for example. And for whatever reason, the TV always seems to be tuned in to Judge Judy. See, some of you all have listened to that show before. I regularly bring my headset with me so that I can work or listen to a podcast or do something else. But there's the occasion where I've given a hearing to what crazy antics are going on in the world of the people's courtroom. And brethren, I want to say that I don't know where they come up with this stuff. I mean, the start of the show always says the plaintiffs are real, the cases are real, and the decisions are real. And I'm here to tell you that it takes a lot of faith to believe that. 24-year-old single woman sues former college roommate. She is accused of, over the course of three months, stealing $1,200 worth of bovine colostrum supplements from her roommate. I don't know where they get this stuff. Now consider this, beloved. Day and night, like an unending series of Judge Judy shows with far less entertainment value, Satan stands to accuse you before the Father. This is going on right now. It is real, a real battle. It is serious. It's not reality TV level humor. He is seeking to persuade our God that we are unworthy of eternal life. And at this point, it is appropriate to make a full stop to say, there's good news for us, church. This should be the sweet reminder to you of the rock of assurance that you have in Jesus Christ our Savior. Every accusation that Satan brings against you, God checks against your record in his judgment books. And every time he looks at one of his converted children, washed in the blood of the Lamb, he reads next to your name, Not guilty. Not guilty. There is therefore now... How much condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God. Your justification, that is your legal declaration of righteousness before our holy God is the most untouchable and unchangeable thing about you in the universe. No amount of accusation can ever begin to taint your record. But I have bad news for you this morning. If you are here and you are not in Christ, then none of that is true of you. And every time that God looks at your record in His roster up in heaven, He will see guilty. 
guilty unless you repent and believe on Christ. And today is the day, beloved. Today is the day to do that. Friend, neighbor, if you do not know Jesus, today is the day to bow before Him in confession of His Lordship over the world and over you. And that His death on the cross and the substitution that He made when He took your place in sacrifice was enough. And that alone is enough to save you from your sins. And if you do that, the Father will look at your record and see... Not guilty. Not guilty. Now I want to look at the next name in the list. Comes right after the term accuser or adversary. And that is the term slanderer. And this is the most important in our text this morning. I'll be spending the most time on this one. Accusation is one thing, but with a strong defense, accusations can be refuted. Peter qualifies this title with the second, and it is the most common name for Satan in the Bible. That is the Greek term diabolos. Most translations will use the term devil, the Latinized version. You can hear the English word diabolical in the name. The word literally means in Greek slanderer or one who slanders. One who gives a false report. One who twists the truth. One who lies. It'll sound silly to you when I say this, but this is my favorite name for Satan in all of the Bible. And there's a reason for that. This name gets to the heart of what he is really up to. How he really twists and messes with the sheep of Jesus Christ. A Greek speaker or reader, when they read the original text of the Bible, would have read Diabolos and thought one who slanders. Now you may have read the Bible all your life and you've never thought that. You look and you see devil and you think of the red-suited guy with horns on his head and a pitchfork. That's not what the early church would have known when they read this passage. They would have actually gotten intel and information on the devil from the actual name given to our enemy. And I wish Bible publishers actually had the guts to do this with a bunch of Greek words in the Bible. I wish they would just translate his name slanderer. It would give you a lot more information today. You would be reading it like an original audience. I wish they'd do the same with the word baptism. Why not just translate it, immerse, every single time in the text? There's so many passages that would make so much more sense if you just read immersion or submersion. But then you wouldn't sell Bibles to Catholics, Anglicans, Episcopalians, Lutherans, and Presbyterians. And I guess the money is really that much more important than the truth. But I digress. That's my one soapbox for the morning. Let me challenge you briefly in your daily devotions. Every time you read the word devil in the New Testament, auto-correct in your mind and read it as slanderer. It'll make a lot more sense of the passage. It really will. The devil's primary role is to slander us. His charges are bogus. They're contrived. They're erroneous. They're without full and reliable support. And God sees right through them. But Peter brings this up to his dispersion churches because in the heat of the struggle, you forget pretty quick. 
Peter wouldn't forget. He told the Lord Jesus to his face that he would never go to the cross and die a martyr's death. He said of our Lord, it's so beneath our Messiah King that he would ever suffer on a Roman cross. Far be it from you, Lord. You, Lord, you. Oh no, far be it from you. Where did that come from? Who planted that thought in his mind? The Bible tells us. Satan slandered Jesus to Peter. And Peter bought it. That's why Jesus turned around and said, Get behind me, Satan. That idea came from somewhere it shouldn't have come from. You shouldn't be listening to him. We cannot be ignorant of these designs, beloved. And I'll come back to slanderer in just a minute. But briefly, let's look at the third name. A roaring lion. Peter calls Satan a prowling lion or roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Remember, in these days there were no zoos. Tame lions were not a thing. Only wild lions. Christians thrown to lions. This one carries a little bit more weight in their context than ours. For years, our family was gifted with annual zoo passes to the Knoxville Zoo. My favorite exhibit since I was a little boy has always been the lions and the tigers. The problem with the lions at the Knoxville Zoo is that they're really boring. They lay around on a stone dais all day, and the most exciting thing you might see of them is when they stretch, yawn, or move places from one spot to another. I asked a zookeeper one time, if it's their captivity that affects those natural kind of hunting instincts in them, that dangerous element to them. He told me that the ferocity of the lion is still there. It only comes out at 7.30 each morning when they're fed. They hand them this huge chunk of meat. And all of the lions, if you're there to watch it, the zoo's not open, they go wild over this one piece of meat and fight over it like they are what they are, lions. And then they lay back down and they go back to sleep when all the visitors come in. Peter's churches would have had a much healthier respect for this lion imagery. His intention here is to show that the adversary who lives to slander post-cross has the power to make a significant impact on the church. Consider the word devour, swallow up, eat alive. Now, your question at this point may be, but I thought that Satan was bound. I thought that Jesus tied him up. And Peter says he's still on the prowl. What gives? Well, Satan is bound, but that does not mean that he's powerless. There is a scene in the third stage of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress where Christian is almost to the house of the Lord on the hill. And he's confronted with two lions standing watch on either side of the narrow way. He fears greatly and hesitates to proceed. And Bunyan writes these words. The lions were chained, but he did not see the chains that constrained the ferocious beasts. Then he hears the cries of watchful, the doorkeeper of the house on the hill, call him onward. They are placed there to test your faith at this point in the journey. They are to show clearly those who have no faith. So stay in the middle of the path and you will not be harmed. And Christian obeys and he does come safely to the house on the hill. 
Is Satan bound? Absolutely. Is he allowed to remain diabolicalizing in order to test your faith? You bet he is. Matt said to you back in November of 2021, he is a dog on a leash, but a dog can still hurt you if you get close enough. So how does Satan prowl around and attempt to devour the saints at Maynardville Fellowship? Primarily through slander. As I said, this is his game. This is what he loves to do. Peter literally says, if I were to read the text the way that an original reader would have read it, your adversary or your opposer, the slanderer, goes about like a roaring lion. Jesus, in John chapter 8, calls him the father of lies. Now, he does this, beloved, in four ways. These are the four probably most important things I could say to you this morning. How does he slander us? He does it in four ways. First, he slanders men to God. He slanders men to God. I mentioned earlier from Revelation 12, that Satan stands day and night before God to accuse the church of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to spend too much time on this one, since it's not the kind of slander that Peter is here addressing, but you need to be aware that this is an ongoing reality. Every time God closes a court case presented by the devil, he already has another one ready. Consider the words of Paul in Hebrews chapter 7. This is such good news in this context. Jesus he says, ever lives to intercede for us. From Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25. What a glorious truth that He pleads the Father not only because of our constant falling into sin, but He pleads to the Father on our behalf because of the incessant assaults of the accuser. Didn't Jesus say to Peter, I have prayed for you that your strength may not fail? What a glorious truth That our high priest, our king, our advocate is doing that for us even now. Number two, he slanders God to men. The first one, he slanders men to God. The next one, he slanders God to men. Satan loves bastardization. He craves fatherlessness. Especially, what he would love to see is a fatherless bride, were it possible. When he slanders God to you, he's trying to sever that precious relationship that you have by telling you that you can't trust God. You can't go to him and say, our father, my father. Why? Well, because you can't trust him. Now, you know when he first tried that trick, it was all the way back in the opening chapters of Genesis. Did God really say... He called into question the trustworthiness of the words and, ultimately, the character of Yahweh God. Eve attempted to set the record straight, and she failed. And Satan countered again with slander, making it worse. You will not surely die. God knows something you don't. He's holding out on you. He's keeping back his best from you. Don't you see that you're at the kiddie table? You have to eat the Brussels sprouts while he's over there with the pecan pie? Imagine the tactics that he might have used against Peter's churches. Come on, guys. Is this really what you signed up for? All this persecution and suffering? Isn't God's kingdom better than all this trouble he's brought you? 
you're missing out. Peter and the apostles, they're having money dumped at their feet right now. Where's your share? God obviously doesn't love your little dispersion church. He only has plans to make you suffer, to make you eat dirt. Now, brethren, there isn't one person here who's not at some point in their life experienced something like this. This is happening all the time. Satan attacks the trustworthiness of God and His Word to us, and he does this regularly. He tells you that God's will won't bring you happiness. That obedience is a life of boredom and slavery. That God won't answer your prayers, so there's no point in praying. Or maybe He will answer your prayers, but He'll do the opposite of what you want. So what's the point of praying anyway? God's not going to tell you what His will is. You're just His pawn, remember? You probably get a whooping just for asking. That's the kind of father he is. He lives to find out your sin and just drill you about it. That's the way your earthly father was, right? Let's say that there's a young woman in this church who's eager to marry, and she's been waiting patiently on God. And the waiting is hard. She prays and asks God to give her faith to be patient. As Peter suggests right here in chapter 5, verse 7, she casts continually all her anxieties on God since he cares for her. And then immediately, what happens? The slander starts. What are you doing? Give your anxieties to God? Don't do that. God's going to give you the ugliest guy you've ever seen. You don't want to marry somebody like that. Now, beloved, Satan will take this route with you every single morning. You try and wake up to pray and give yourself to your devotions. And Jesus knew that we would be tempted this way. And that's why he already dealt with this exact issue the slander of God to men in the Gospels. He said, What man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good? To those who ask him, Matthew 7, 9 through 11. The third thing that Satan does is he slanders man to man. Jesus taught us that a house divided against itself will fall. He told us that the wolf comes to snatch and scatter the sheep. Notice, he first snatches the sheep and then scatters them. Satan constantly sows division in the body of Christ through the most insignificant of things. It doesn't have to be something big. It can be something silly. But it's slander. It's always through slander. I heard a story about a pastor who took a summer job working on a farm with a fellow elder. They were both given work on opposite ends of the farm. They didn't see each other until the end of work that day all day long in the hot sun this one man remembers just stewing over thoughts of how easy that other brother had his work right then oh it must have been so easy while he was there at the other end of the farm working so hard truth was his co-elder was having at the same time the exact same thoughts 
And when they came together at the end of the day, they both immediately confessed to one another and embraced in Christian unity. Now, I'm not saying, don't hear me saying that our sin is not an element in all of this. Our sin is definitely an element in this. But I want to be careful of two extremes. The one extreme, remember, is obsession with the unseen realm. The other extreme is ignorance. Whenever we have a negative thought, we blame it on our sin. Oh, it's just my sin. I shouldn't have sinful thoughts. That's wrong. I'm sorry. When the Bible tells us that we have an enemy who seeks to slander us, and he does this through the pages of Scripture, God to men, men to God, man to man. Think about those moments when you're tempted with uncharitable thoughts about something so small on a Sunday morning. Just a Sunday morning. Consider for a moment. Pastor Matt shook that couple's hand when he walked into the church this morning. And then he walked right by me and my wife and he didn't even say hi. He has something against me. I just know it. Don't even try and tell me that thoughts like that don't cross people's minds. I know they do. You're new here, but no one has ever tried to reach out to you. You must be in the wrong place. Can you believe she just said that? After what her daughter said to yours? What a tramp. Make sure your husband keeps your family away from their family. Those guys always sit at the same table together every single time we have fellowship meal. It's because they all used to go to church together. What a click. What a bunch of middle schoolers. The elders don't recognize your gifts here at Manorville Fellowship. They're holding back on all that God has for you. Maybe you should just tell somebody. I'm sure there are others here who are frustrated the same way that you are. All those pictures they posted to Instagram of the get-together that you weren't invited to. You know it's because they don't like your wife and kids. Scroll back up to that girl in her sports bra. That's worth looking at. Now do you see, beloved, why Peter says, sober-minded, watchful. Because this battle is being waged on two fronts. This battle is going on all the time. This is how the enemy snatches us up and gives us over to that sin that remains in our flesh that puts us back into that greenhouse where the root of bitterness grows up in our hearts. No covenant member should have anything against another. In fact, Matt has just finished preaching through this in Matthew 18. If there is an open sin between you and someone else at Manorville Fellowship, you are biblically commanded to go and work it out with them. It is not an option. You must go work it out. But let me say this as well. To entertain suggestions in your mind that someone else has it out for you, or you are the only one dealing with X, or they all think Y about you, is also sinful. You have to put those thoughts away from you. On more than one occasion, I've had members of our congregation reach out to me, and I've also reached out to members of our church, and, and ask for clarification. Was there a misunderstanding in that conversation? That didn't end right. I just wanted to make sure you heard me. I wasn't saying this. I was saying this. Right, was there an offense the other day? I just noticed that maybe things were a little different. I, I may have misread. I just want to make sure that the air is clear. But 
It usually amounts to nothing, I know. We often read things the wrong way. Don't let your suppositions fester. C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters writes, The suspicion often creates what it suspects. Suspicion often creates what it suspects. So for the sake of unity, church, go get clarity. Now number four. Lastly, Satan slanders us to ourselves. And for some of you, this is the one that you will feel the most severely. You don't need anyone to confirm your inadequacy and your weakness. In the battlefield of the mind, the catapults of slander seems like they just keep firing over and over again. Remember that the Lord Jesus dealt with similar accusation. Well, Mr. Son of God, if you really all are that in a bag of chips, then do X. If you're really the Son of God, then show it, prove it, do this. The Lord Jesus, who had no sin, had to endure massive assault from the enemy. Like many of you, he faced personal accusation from the devil. The slanderer is going to attack you personally, beloved. Maybe you've heard something like this before. You're never going to make progress in the Christian life. You're never going to get over that sin. How long have you been following Jesus? How many times have you asked for forgiveness for the same thing? Do you really think that it's that easy to repent? Jesus never died for you. You'll never amount to anything in the kingdom. Your business is going to fail. Why did you even start out on that road anyway? Look at how God uses that other brother or sister in this church. You don't have any gifts like that. You'd never be able to speak so boldly or serve the way that they do. How can you expect your wife to submit to you when you keep sinning against her? Don't ask her to apologize. You just did the same thing, you hypocrite. Remember that thing about the log in your eye? When are you going to get rid of the one in yours? Are you keeping count of how many times you have sinned against your children? How could they listen to your gospel message now? They've heard it so many times... And they still haven't listened. How is this time going to be any different? You've shown them that they can't trust you. They're never going to come to Christ. Now, I don't enjoy reading stuff like that. Yuck. But I know that at some point in your life, you've probably had temptation or thought that way. And you need to, as Peter warns us here, be aware of where that comes from. I know how true and real that these thoughts might feel in the moment, but as my mother used to tell me, that's a lie from the pit of hell. Brethren, quit you like men. As Peter said, you have got to be ready for his attacks. So speaking of readiness, as I close, I want to talk about resistance. Data does not equal deliverance. Data does not equal deliverance. Not according to Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5. We need more than just intel on our adversary. David says, Blessed be the Lord my rock, 
who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Psalm 144 verse 1. In verses 8 and 9, Peter gives the church three commands for dealing with the devil. And I want to be clear about this. These are the commands. Remember, imperatives loaded up front, or excuse me, indicatives loaded up front. We're in the imperatives right now. These are required by God for resisting your enemy. We're instructed by our Father in heaven to deal with the slanderer in these three ways. Here they are in order of appearance. Sobriety, watchfulness, and resistance. Let's look at sobriety first. Sobriety, or you might think a temperate mind. Immediately, people think of things like drugs and alcohol, which of course remove a sober mind. But I want you to be cautious that you don't lose temperance in other ways. Like when you're scrolling Twitter and you put your phone down and you're frustrated and tightwadded and angry and bitter. Or at night when you default to Netflix garbage instead of leading your wife in holiness. Or playing stupid amounts of video games. Or gossiping on Instagram. How many a man has dropped his guard during a UT football game? And then he's interrupted by his child and he goes off the rail in wrath against his own family. You lost your sober mind. You didn't obey the command. Doesn't mean you can't watch the game. What did Peter say? Be sober-minded. Don't lose it. Don't lose your cool. Stay mentally ready. Number two, watchfulness. And this is usually watchfulness in prayer. That makes a lot of sense in the context of talking about the unseen realm. Paul told the Colossian church, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. It's time for the church of Jesus Christ to stop giving the excuse, I just don't have time to pray. You make time for breathing. Jesus says if you don't stay connected to the vine, you'll shrivel up and die. But you make time for breathing. You can make time for praying. You need to know what your enemy is up to. And you need to be ready for it. And you've got to get close to the Lord and Master of your salvation in order to beat Satan and cast him out. Abide with Christ in prayer, church. I can anticipate the slanderer attacking you right now. You have a horrible prayer life. You never pray enough. Listen to what he's asking you to do. Shoot, you don't even like praying. Are you even a Christian? Don't buy what he's selling. He's already gotten whooped by Jesus one time. Now he's in the queue for the bottomless pit. He'll snag Christians along the way who are too confident to get on their knees and pray to God and get them all wrapped up in slander and bitterness and breaking unity of the fellowship. Here's a helpful tip, by the way, for those of you who struggle to keep your attention in prayer. When I pray, I always have a notepad set right to the side next to me with a pen ready because inevitably when I start to pray, a thought or a need... Or something on my to-do list comes to my mind. And I think, oh, I need to do that right now. But I just quickly write it down and I go right back into prayer. I'm going to give myself to prayer. And I know that there's going to be those thoughts and distractions that come. So I try and 
give myself an opportunity to quickly make an important note and then go right back to what I need to do. And by the way, prayer, as you know, takes practice. The last one that I want to look at with you this morning is faith-filled resistance. The Greek word enthistomai implies active, determined opposition, usually through confrontation. From Galatians 2.11, Paul opposed Peter to his face because he stood condemned. James gives the same advice in his epistle when he speaks of the slander. He says, resist the slander, he uses the same word, and he will flee from you. The Bible commands Christians to flee several things. It says persecution, you can flee. Sexual immorality, you must flee. Youthful desires, idolatry, flee, flee. But nowhere in the Bible are Christians commanded to flee from the devil. Peter commanded his covenant members to instead resist him, to oppose him. Since the time of the writing of the New Testament, there's been a stand-your-ground law written into the Christian's code of conduct when facing satanic attack. That may sound intimidating to some of you. Chris, you don't know how often I fail at this. I'm pretty confident that with Peter's instructions here, his churches would have had far less trepidation and anxiousness and fear confronting our adversary than we do today. You say, well, how do you know that? I want to show you today an area where your English Bible cheats you out of something really, really good. It's not intentional. It's just the limitations of our English language. In English, we use the word you to refer to a singular second person, like, son, would you go and get me X, Y, or Z. We also use the word you for the plural second person. Mainerville Fellowship, you must resist the devil. And it's determined by the context which two we're using here. Now what does that have to do with 1 Peter 5? What you can't see in this text is that all the you pronouns are plural. All the you pronouns are in the plural. Beloved, you are called by God to fight Satan corporately, not individually. You must fight him times individually, but you must lean on the sheep of God in order to resist the devil. Starting at verse 8, let me read this with a helpful southern distinctiveness. Southerners were said we have no brains. I actually think we know a lot more than people give us credit for. Let me read this with a helpful southern distinctiveness. Y'all's adversary, the slanderer, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by y'all's brotherhood throughout the world. Now that makes more sense of the passage. He's talking to the church. He's talking to a group of people. But as Western individualists who think exclusively in singular terms, we think, I've got to win this fight alone. I gotta go home and I gotta win my fights with the devil. I gotta put my gloves on. I gotta go toe to toe by myself. 
Beloved, you need the church of Jesus to win this fight. I believe perhaps the main reason that Satan has had a field day with Christians in the West for the better part of 50 years is because we have lost a love for the bride of Christ. We have lost a love for the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus prayed that we might be one flock. But we really prefer being a flock of one. I'm saved. I'm safe. I worshiped God. I read my Bible. I pray. It's all about what you do for Christ. The New Testament context is almost always plural. Almost always the church. All of the covenant graces of God flow to us through the church of Jesus Christ. We have convinced ourselves, however, that the grace of God flows to the church through us. And what does this do? It places us apart from the flock of God, even in our own minds, off alone, ripe for the picking. Pastor Tim Bailey said, Alone every man is picked off by Satan and devoured. To have our great shepherd's protection, we must stay near him and his sheepfold, the church. Alone we are helpless. He goes on to say, because Jesus gave himself up for the church, no individual ever has safety outside of the church. Those are strong words, but I believe he's on to something. Let me give you my final application. Maynardville Fellowship, give yourself to the local church. If you're dealing with depression or besetting sins or the slander of the enemy, you need the church. You need to go to somebody and say, I cannot get this out of my mind. Help me. I've had brothers and sisters at Christ the King come to me and say, Chris, can I be honest? That's just slander from the enemy. And immediately, it's like the fog clears. Oh, I get it. Of course it is. I know it's stupid. Yes. Okay. Dumb thoughts. Moving on with my life. You need the fellowship of the church. You need the exhortations, the gifts, the rebukes. And if you don't repent, you need the discipline of the church. Quit keeping the bride of Christ at arm's length. The church doesn't know how much sin I've got. That's a problem. Why not? As soon as they know about it, they're going to help you fight to get it out. That's what the church is for. We're going to get sanctified together. That's our whole job, to build one another up into the image of Christ. You need the support of your church. Are you experiencing prolonged periods of sullenness? You need the prayers of your church. You still can't get over that attitude that you've got with your family when you go home and nobody here sees you except your wife and your kids. You need the accountability of the church. Beloved, you need the church more than you need your weekly trip to Costco. If anybody goes to Costco out here. You need to persevere with the church. This isn't going to be an overnight fix. I know repentance is a mind change, but that comes with long training in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. You'll get one wave of encouragement and immediately more challenges are going to come. You'll get one good rebuke and you'll need three others. Brothers, don't give up on the church. Remember, God is going to sanctify you out of the nonsense that you are currently in. And you may find more, but persevere together with the church. Now I want to leave you with the hope 
of a beautiful promise in the Scriptures. In Genesis 3, you remember that it was promised that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And of course you know that this Jesus Christ did when He died for us and rose for our justification. But have you considered Manival Fellowship as those who believe in a victorious church through Christ that Jesus expects you to follow His skull-crushing example? You thought about that? From the pen of the Apostle Paul, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Under your feet. Jesus crushes Satan and He expects the church to do the same. We're to follow His example. This is the point of the message this morning, beloved. That you would be wise and good and innocent and evil. But take it to the bank. When you resist the slanderer by faith, you will be victorious. For God is going to crush him under your feet. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it opens our minds and our hearts to understand things in the world. That are hard to understand, that are mysterious. It helps us to be ready. It trains our hands for war. And I pray now for these saints that as we leave this place, they would be trained for war. They would be ready for battle. That they would go into all the world ready to make disciples. And as soon as they face opposition of any kind, including the slander of the enemy, that they would by faith, together with their brothers and sisters here, pray and resist Him with a sober mind. And as you promised, that you would give them the strength to put their foot down on the head of the enemy and be done with him. We thank you, Lord, because we know you've already answered this promise and you will continue to do so in the future. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.